0: Welcome to the Forgettable Reads Podcast, a no-nonsense sleepcast for the rest of us. No creepy whispering, no bad spell music, no sleepy monotone, just sincere reads of boring, bland material for all your verbal white noise needs. And now your host, Lauren Good. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode one of the podcast. My name is Lauren Good, and I thought tonight I would take a minute to kind of explain why I wanted to create this podcast and what the episode format will be like. So for many, many years, I have had difficulty falling asleep. Um, Sometimes I will wake up late at night and then have difficulty falling back asleep. And even though I know, (laughs) I know in my head, the, the worst thing to do when you wake up in the middle of the night is to grab your phone and look at it. That's exactly what I was doing. I was scrolling social media. I was playing games, watching videos on YouTube. And over the years, I started trying to look for natural help (laughs) in falling asleep. And what I found is there's a lot of what I'll call intentional sleep aids out there um, ASMR videos, music that's designed to be a certain frequency or to balance your chakras, meditation apps, breathing exercises, um, people whispering like this. And I know that for some people, those type of aids help. For me, they didn't. They actually stressed me out a little bit more. It's like, as I was listening, I kept thinking, when is it going to work? When am I going to fall asleep? And I was chatting with, um, some of my other friends and they had said sometimes just like putting on a tv show that they'd heard before usually would put them out the problem was that then they would either fall asleep on the couch or they would fall asleep with their laptop still in their bed and uh, sometimes if a commercial came on or uh, laugh tracks things like that might wake them up in the middle so anyway last year uh, I had started an audio book selection. I was listening to a lot of nonfiction uh, books on on Audible. And during the day when I would listen to them, I would be, you know, cleaning, doing things and listening at the same time. And it was great. But this one evening, I decided to try to listen to a chapter of uh, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. I had no idea it was going to knock me out. So I didn't set a sleep timer. But yeah, within, I don't know, within 10 minutes, I was out like a light and it was marvelous. The problem was the next day when I was trying to figure out where I was in the book, I had no idea because the whole book had played out overnight because I hadn't set a sleep timer. I just started thinking about ways that I could use all of the professional audio equipment that I already have because I've been a professional voiceover actor for a long time I, <laughs> whenever you tell people you're a voice actor, the first question they ask is, anything I've heard of? And now, of course, I can, I can cite commercial campaigns that I know people have heard, like I'm the, um, geez, what is it called? Pocket Casts voice. And, uh, you know, Walmart and Remax and stuff like that. But my probably biggest claim to fame, of course, I started my voiceover career uh, in anime, and I voiced the character of Gracia Hughes on Full Metal Alchemist. So every episode, we'll have a brief introduction like this. We'll talk about something from the day. It's unscripted, just me, me and you. And then we will get into a reading of some type of textbook, (laughs) some type of technical writing, uh, some fascinating look into some subject that you never would have thought to look into. So the rules here are pretty simple. You can use this podcast however you want. You can skip my intro, you can skip the reading, you can listen to every new episode, or you can listen to the same one over and over and over again, if you find one that you like. Most importantly, you do not have to fall asleep. You can stay awake and learn some weird fact that you can use for trivia. Or maybe you just like the idea that Gracia Hughes is reading to you at night. Strange, weird stuff. (laughs) Weird stuff on the interwebs. Anyway, there is no right or wrong way about it. So with that in mind, let's begin tonight's reading. At a friend's party, Uma witnessed her boyfriend flagrantly flirting with another woman. She was initially quite angry, but when he later apologized for his actions and was very attentive to her, she experienced unusually strong feelings of attraction toward him. Still, she somehow felt manipulated by the whole affair. After all, her friends had warned her that he had a terrible reputation for playing mind games. Elicited Behaviors The word elicit means to draw out or bring forth. Thus, an elicited behavior is one that is automatically drawn out by a certain stimulus. Note that the word is elicit and not illicit, which refers to something illegal, such as an illicit drug. A sneeze produced by a particle of dust or a startle reaction to a sound of a gunshot are examples of elicited behaviors. They are elicited in the sense that they are automatically drawn out by the stimuli that produce them. In this sense, many elicited behaviors are behaviors that we consider to be involuntary. For example, you do not choose to be startled by a gunshot. Your startle reaction is an involuntary response to the gunshot. Similarly, you do not choose to salivate when you bite into a lemon. Salivating is an involuntary response to the lemon. In this chapter, we begin describing different types of elicited behaviors as well as some simple mechanisms which can be modified. This will include a discussion of the opponent process theory of emotion, an intriguing theory that explains a wide variety of emotional phenomenon ranging from symptoms of drug withdrawal to the sense of loss you feel following the breakup of a relationship. The remainder of the chapter will then be devoted to introducing the concept of classical conditioning, the first major type of learning to be discussed in this text. Reflexes are the most basic form of elicited behavior. A reflex is a relatively simple, automatic response to a stimulus. It can also be defined as a relationship between such a response and the stimulus that elicits it. Some reflexes involve only one gland or set of muscles, such as when you salivate in response to a drop of lemon juice or blink in response to a puff of air. Other reflexes are more general in scope, involving the coordinated action of several body parts. For example, the startle response, a defensive reaction to a sudden unexpected stimulus, involves the automatic tightening of skeletal muscles as well as various hormonal and visceral internal organ changes. Similarly, the orienting response in which we automatically position ourselves to facilitate attending to a stimulus can involve a relatively major body movement such as when we automatically turn in response to an unfamiliar noise behind us. Many reflexes are closely tied to survival. For example, food consumption involves a chain of reflexes including salivation, peristalsis, which is the wave-like action that pushes food down the esophagus and through the digestive system, and secretion of digestive juices in the stomach. Conversely, The vomiting reflex serves as a protective function by expelling potentially poisonous substances from the digestive system. Other protective reflexes include the flexion response, in which we automatically jerk our hand or foot away from a hot or sharp object that we have inadvertently contacted. And the aforementioned startle response, designed to ready us for fight or flight in an unexpected stimulus, should prove dangerous. Newborns come pre-packaged with a host of reflexes that facilitate their survival. For example, if you touch a baby's cheek with your finger, the baby will automatically turn his or her head in that direction. This reflex action is designed to facilitate taking a nipple into the mouth. Once the nipple is in the mouth, the baby's sucking reflex is activated, which in turns elicits a milk letdown reflex in the mother. Many of these reflexes disappear within a few years. For example, the sucking reflex, but others such as salivating and vomiting remain with us throughout life. Many of the simpler reflexes are activated through a reflex arc. A reflex arc is a neural structure that underlies many reflexes and consists of a sensory neuron, an interneuron, and a motor neuron. For example, when you quickly jerk your hand away from an open flame, you are exhibiting a flexion response. Upon touching the flame, receptors in the hand stimulate sensory neurons that carry a danger message in the form of a burst of nerve impulses toward the spinal cord. Within the spinal cord, interneurons receive the message and immediately pass it on to other motor neurons. These motor neurons then activate the muscles in the arm that pull the hand away from the flame. Simultaneous with this process, pain messages are also sent up the spinal cord to the brain But by the time they are received and you consciously feel the pain, the hand is already being withdrawn from the flame. Thus, we do not withdraw our hand from the flame because of the pain. We actually begin withdrawing our hand before feeling any pain because the flexion response utilizes a simple reflex arc through the spinal cord. We are able to withdraw our hand from the flame much quicker than if the message had to be routed all the way through the brain and then back down to the arm muscles. Fixed Action Patterns Some types of elicited behaviors are more complex than simple reflexes. A fixed action pattern is a fixed sequence of responses elicited by a specific stimulus. Fixed action patterns are also sometimes called modal action patterns. Examples include web building by spiders, V-shaped formation flying by ducks, and nut bearing by some species of squirrels. Dogs and cats display numerous fixed action patterns. Cats compulsively scratch the ground to cover up urine and feces, effective in a litter box, but completely ineffective on your carpet, and rub up against the legs of visitors to mark them as belonging to their territory. Dogs indicate their desire to play by wagging their tails, stretching out their front legs, and lowering their heads to the ground. In fact, by adopting this posture and looking completely foolish in front of any visitors, you can effectively ask your dog if it wishes to play, which, of course, it will not, given that it now has you looking like an idiot. For many fixed action patterns, we are able to identify a specific stimulus that sets it in motion. The specific stimulus that elicits a fixed action pattern is called a sign stimulus or releaser. For example, a male betta splendens, better known as a Siamese fighting fish, immediately takes an aggressive posture at the sight of another male the Releaser, with both fish spreading out their brilliant red or blue fins and gills. If introduced into the same tank, the two fish will attack each other. Similarly, during mating season, a male stickleback fish displays a fixed sequence of aggressive actions when another male enters its territory. Interestingly, the sign stimulus for the stickleback's aggressive actions is not the presence of the other male, but the sight of its red underbelly. If the red belly is covered up or painted a different color, the intruder will not be attacked. On the other hand, if a pie-shaped or cigar-shaped piece of wood with a red patch on the bottom is introduced into the tank, it will be attacked. Fixed action patterns tend to be unique to certain species and are therefore sometimes called species-specific behaviors. They can also be called instincts, But some researchers dislike this term because it implies that the behavior is more rigid and inflexible than is actually the case. For example, if two rats are subjected to a painful stimulus, such as an electric shock, they will automatically attack each other. In fact, many species will become aggressive in reaction to pain, but in rats it often takes the form of a fixed action pattern in which two combatants rear up on their hind legs and essentially box by striking out at each other with their front paws. Interestingly, this aggression is more likely to occur in rats that had previously been trained to be aggressive than in those that had not been trained to be aggressive. Thus, the rat's fixed action pattern of aggression is actually somewhat variable and can be significantly modified by experience. Fixed action patterns are adaptive responses that have evolved to help animals cope with the consistent aspects of their environment. The difficulty with such inherited behavior patterns is that sudden, large-scale changes in the environment may render the pattern useless or even harmful. For example, deer have an inborn tendency to run a zigzag pattern when being pursued by a predator. This action, which confuses the predator, greatly increases the deer's chance of survival in the wild. However, this same action greatly reduces its chance of survival when it is being pursued down the highway by an automobile. The inborn tendency to zigzag is a maladaptive way to responding to the modern threat of automobiles. By comparison, an animal that can modify its behavior patterns through learning can better adapt to a changing environment, which is why the ability to learn was such an important evolutionary advancement. Simple Mechanisms of Learning, Habituation and Sensitization the repeated presentation of an eliciting stimulus can alter the strength of the elicited behavior. Habituation is a decrease in the strength of an elicited behavior following repeated presentations of the eliciting stimulus. For example, we quickly stop attending to low-intensity background noise, such as the ticking of a clock or the distant noise of traffic. Similarly, a sudden unexpected tap on the shoulder may elicit a startle response, whereas any additional taps might have no such effect. By contrast, sensitization is an increase in the strength of an elicited behavior following repeated presentations of the eliciting stimulus. For example, soldiers under attack generally do not habituate to the sound of artillery shells exploding nearby. Instead, their startle reaction grows stronger. Needless to say, this greatly contributes to the stress they experience and the inevitable breakdown virtually all soldiers will suffer after too much exposure to battle conditions, though Hollywood would often have you think otherwise. The effects of habituation and sensitization usually disappear when the stimulus is not presented for a period of time, meaning that the strength of the behavior goes back to its original level. For example, you might habituate to the sound of a neighbor's stereo one evening, only to be once more bothered by it when she turns it on the next morning. In the few hours since you last heard the music, your habituation to it disappeared and you again responded to the noise like you normally would. But if you move into an apartment which you hear the sound of a train each morning, your reaction to the noise will probably be more intense on the first day and then decrease slowly after. Moreover, once you become fully habituated to the noise, you would have to be away from your apartment for several weeks or even months before your reaction to the noise would return to its original level. This type of habituation is known as long-term habituation, as opposed to short-term habituation. Thus, in long-term habituation, the response slowly decreases as a result of repeated stimulation and one's ability to respond to the stimulus then slowly recovers in the absence of the repeated stimulation. In short-term habituation, the response quickly decreases as a result of repeated stimulation, and one's ability to respond then quickly recovers in the absence of stimulation. Moreover, long-term habituation tends to occur when presentations of the stimulus are widely spaced, for example, a train going by your apartment each morning. Where short-term habituation tends to occur when presentations of the stimulus are narrowly spaced or continuous, for example, a child next door repeatedly banging on a drum. Also, repeated sessions of short-term habituation spread out over time can gradually lead to long-term habituation. The outside traffic noise that you had to habituate to each time you came home in the evening eventually becomes largely unnoticeable even when you first walk in the door. Note that sensitization often generalizes to other stimuli. A shell-shocked soldier is likely to jump not only in response to artillery explosions, but also to any sudden stimulus. By contrast, habituation tends to be more stimulus-specific, such that even small changes in the stimulus may result in the reappearance of the response. Thus, many people suddenly become aware of the sound of their car when the motor sounds a bit different, or when the car has a slightly different feel to it as they are driving along. Only a minor change is needed to alert the driver that something is potentially wrong and hopefully inexpensive to fix. One version of this process is known as the Coolidge Effect, based on an old joke about former U.S. President Calvin Coolidge. The story has it that he and his wife were once being separately escorted around a chicken farm, When Mrs. Coolidge was informed the resident rooster was capable of mating several times a day, she replied, You should tell that to the president. Informed about this, the president asked whether the repeating matings occurred with the same chicken or different chickens. When told that it was different chickens, he replied, You should tell that to my wife. The Coolidge effect, therefore, is an enhanced sexual arousal displayed by the males of some species when presented with different sexual partners, as opposed to the same sexual partner to whom it has habituated. Habituated responses can also reappear following the presentation of a seemingly irrelevant novel stimulus, a phenomenon called dishabituation. For example, Sherry might quickly habituate to the sound of gunshots at a shooting range. If, however, a handsome stranger approaches and stands nearby, she might again be startled when the next shot is fired. Likewise, couples can sometimes rekindle their romance by traveling to a new and different environment, or even just by treating themselves to a night in a hotel room rather than staying at home. Why does repeated exposure to certain stimuli sometimes result in habituation and sometimes in sensitization? One factor is the intensity of the eliciting stimulus. A low-intensity stimulus, such as the ticking of a clock, typically results in habituation, while a high-intensity stimulus, such as exploding artillery shells, typically results in sensitization. A stimulus of intermediate intensity often results in an initial period of sensitization followed by habituation. For example, at a shooting range, the first few shots you hear might produce an increasingly strong startle reaction. But then you begin to habituate to the shots, and after a while you hardly notice them. Another factor that influences habituation versus sensitization, which can override the intensity factor, is the evolutionary adaptive significance of the stimulus. For example, which of the following would be easier to habituate to at night? The constant sound of locomotives shuttling rail cars back and forth in the rail yard nearby or the sound of a wasp buzzing in your bedroom. The buzzing of the wasp is much less intense stimulus than the sound of the trains, and yet many people will find it much easier to habituate to the sound of the trains. Now consider other sensory modalities. Think of smells associated with foods. Most people quickly habituate to the smell of onions and spices, even if quite strong, but become increasingly bothered by the smell of something rancid, even if relatively weak. Likewise, with touch, we habituate easily to firm pressure on our body, such as our own body weight pressing down on a chair, whereas we do not habituate to tickling or a gentle caress. See what is happening here? Habituation and sensitization are processes that we see across species, even in very simple organisms like worms and snails. From an evolutionary perspective, this suggests that these processes probably have tremendous survival advantages. In a sense, they help us sort stimuli into two basic categories, currently relevant and currently irrelevant. If a stimulus is currently irrelevant, we tend to habituate to it. If a stimulus is currently relevant, that is, it provides some sort of useful or at least novel information, we tend to not habituate to it. And if a stimulus is extremely relevant, perhaps even dangerous, we may become sensitized to it. It therefore makes sense to become sensitized to the buzzing sound of insects that sting and the smell of something rotten that could poison us. It also makes sense not to habituate to the caress of a lover, since touching has, throughout our evolutionary history, been associated with positive reproductive opportunities. This perspective also explains why stimulus intensity can make a difference. Low-intensity stimuli are often insignificant, while high-intensity stimuli are often very significant and sometimes potentially dangerous.